0: this week's episode of the Good Luck Club podcast. My guest today is John Elkington, Executive Chairman and Co-Founder of Volant Ventures.
1: John, welcome. Simon, it's wonderful to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Well, I'd like to start off, if you wouldn't mind, perhaps introducing yourself to my audience.
1: Oh, God, Uh, that's a problem i'm i've always resisted the elevator pitch where you've got those few seconds to uh, tell people who you are and what you want from them um and part of the problem is i've been in the environmental then sustainability space for over 50 years uh during that time i set up four social businesses since 1978 they all still exist uh, the third one was called sustainability um i've written 20 books i'm just starting a new one um and I suppose the final thing to say is that over those years, I've been on, I've served on seventy boards or advisory boards, so from very big companies like Nestlé to small social enterprises and NGOs and so on. So I, I don't know what the hell I am, but I mean, um, somebody could at some stage uh, usefully stick a label on all of that. I'd be grateful.
0: Yeah. Well, I, um, I of course I did my research and and did read about you before you came on the show, and I think I, I just couldn't stop reading there was so much you'd done so much things you've been involved in and that's why I partly wanted to interview you to see where you're at today and your mindset today after all this experience on, on things like innovation and sustainability and, and all of these elements that you've been involved in your whole life so what a legacy by the way I just want to say up front how much respect I have for all the things that you've done. I'd like to start off by asking if you wouldn't mind defining what success means to you I think it's good for my audience to get a gauge of what, what you think that is so that they can get a gauge
1: of who you are. It's interesting because I've never really thought about legacy. And, you know, quite a number of the CEOs, business leaders and so on that we work with, they, they're quite upfront that what they're thinking about is legacy. Uh, to me, success has been always sort of somewhere out in the distance. And in some ways, I've always felt I've, people talk about an imposter uh, syndrome. I'm often in situations around dealing with, very senior, very powerful people. And I'm always asking myself the question, is what I'm doing the best that can be offered or wouldn't these people actually be better off with somebody else uh, doing it? So success is at the individual level. So for me, partly that's, I have a sense of mission. I've had it since I was very young. Um, Am I serving that, that mission? But am I actually, am I learning and am I actually having fun along the way. And then it scales. And, you know, by the time you get to a team and an organization, it's, is that organization alive? I mean, is it still on its feet? Is it doing good work uh, in our field? Is it having, you know, a really serious positive uh, impact? Uh, it, it, is it um, the best that we can uh, be doing at this particular moment in time? And then over, over uh, arching everything is the the planetary scale. And there, in terms of success, I look at what's happened to, for example, the climate or to biodiversity and genetic, you know, wild gene loss over the, my life. And uh, it's not success, it's, it, it's exactly the reverse. Uh, we, you know, most of these big system crises or emergencies are actually getting significantly worse. So at some level, I feel a complete and utter failure. At other other levels, I can sort of tell you a story around, you know, the personal level or the organizations, which sounds like success. But it's difficult to marry some of this stuff up sometimes.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that concept of legacy as well, because I guess we uh, we, we, we think, I I was just having a conversation with someone prior to this podcast about how young people still seem to crave money. And, you know, you can't take money with you. The only thing you really leave behind is legacy. So, But it is interesting, you've never thought about it as a legacy. You've never looked at your body of work and, and seen it as a legacy. You've just seen it as missions that you're on, I guess.
1: Well, in a way, I mean, it, it's possible. And, and you're constantly reminded, you know, I'm, I'm 71. Um, and a lot of people who are baby boomers, uh, as I've been and have got the same age, are now talking about retirement and and, and number are already retired i'm not i actually think that the next 10 to 15 years are going to be by far the most uh, i often say it but exciting challenging and dangerous of my entire uh, working uh, life and 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 all of that because the system that we've all grown up with is starting to break apart and, and that's macroeconomic it's geopolitical it's many different things uh, and that sounds desperate and indeed it will be but at the same time you need the old daughter to die in order for the new one to come through uh, sufficiently uh, strongly. So I want to play into that next uh, phase uh, of all of this. No, no Legacy, I'll probably think about if I get into my 90s or whatever. Um, both my parents died last year. They were both in their late 90s. I've always said I wanted to be dead by the time I was 70. But now that I'm 71, I've slightly retuned <laughs> that, that metric.
0: I, I guess that's also you always think 10 years older than you is old. So I um that that's it's the, funny. the
1: that, Yeah, it's it, it that can be true. But the odd thing is, um, when I was a child, my friends were often forty to fifty years older than me. And I, I've always been blind to age in a weird way. And now that I'm in my seventies, I find that many of my friends are actually, you know, a third or a quarter of my age. Um so yeah, it, it, it's, but in a sense, it, it's not one thing or another. you actually, the, the, the critical challenge now is we've all got to work right the way across the generations. We can't just be a baby boomer. We can't just be Gen X or a millennial or whatever it is. We is. We, we've got to sort of be blind to age, but not be blind to the challenges that the different generations are actually facing.
0: I know exactly what you mean about the age thing. I mean, I started a business at 15 years old and everyone thought I was too young. Young, But I, I think, you know, it doesn't really matter what age you are. It matters. What was that
1: business doing? What was the theme?
0: A gardening company. Very sophisticated, Fantastic. very high tech. You know, basically, yeah. I, someone had a messy garden and I offered to take care of it. It was, it was, you know, there was no apps around in those days. These days, you have an app for that. You just press a button and someone does it for you. But, and uh, in my era... You know, 30 years ago, you knocked on someone's door and said, your garden's messy, would you like me to take care of it? So
1: I've got a solo robot that will do your lawn for the next...
0: Yeah, that's, that's the future. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's... But I, I, I like this whole um, element of taking age out of the equation. I actually think taking time out of the equation is quite an interesting one yeah. too. Like, yeah. like you just said there, and I love it, you know, the next 10, 15 years are going to be the most, most prolific of my, of my life, the hardest, the most exciting... Yeah, you know, I think that's uh that ironically probably keeps you young too. Because you, 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 sounds like you're gonna need <laughs> well, a lot of energy back. for what you have planned.
1: Well, that goes back to what I said earlier on. For me, success is uh, in 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 large part, am I actually having fun? Am I learning? Am I meeting interesting new people? One of the um the wretched sides of COVID nineteen, um, I mean I, I, people have had desperate family and personal losses and so on, but for me it's not traveling. Uh, And since my uh, new book came out in early April, I've done over 60 virtual keynotes and podcasts and things like that in over 30 countries. But I'm just so frustrated because uh, putting flight shame slightly to one side for the moment, I love traveling to interesting places and meeting new people and, and just getting into ongoing conversations. And many of those turn into friendships that last hopefully a lifetime.
0: I couldn't agree more I mean as a podcast host I am missing the energy of sitting with someone and doing it it's um but yeah. hopefully as well there's some irony in it it makes us appreciate those things when they come back so there's something in there not having it for a while makes us appreciate it again right
1: yes yeah, so I live in hope
0: yeah I, I love the word fun coming into the conversation particularly in, in business world I don't think it's brought into the conversation enough so how do you ensure fun what is fun
1: <laughs> well, you, 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 you try very hard not to work too hard on it, because then that just squashes the thing flat. Um, when, when we set up sustainability, for example, in 1987, and uh, we were casting around for values, the three that I came up with and stuck for quite some time uh, were um, we wanted to make a difference. You know, that's become more commonplace, but at the time that was a little unusual. We wanted to make a profit uh, because we were a business. We were a social business, but as we might now be called, but um, we wanted to make a profit because then that became our buffer against um, adversity. We could invest um, in, in, in future activities and so on. And also we couldn't be pushed around uh, because we weren't totally dependent on, on other people's money. But the third one was um, to have fun and learn as we uh, did what we uh, did so. The, the answer is, some people just are genetically predisposed not to have fun, and you just sort of probably don't want to have them on the team. So, um, when our current CEO uh, was uh, being interviewed about two and a half years ago, my first question uh, to her was, "She, she has a her family have a labradoodle." Uh, she didn't know that her husband had put the labradoodle on her CV. So my question, first question to her was, "What is the point of a labradoodle?" And uh, just just to see how somebody uh, responded, she actually she 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 responded brilliantly well, which is one of the reasons why we uh, took her on. But I, I think if you if you if you do it all around away days and like Google having sort of playpens for employees or associates or whatever they're called. That's one thing. I I just think the work itself should be fun. And um, to me, many, many years ago, younger colleagues would ask me, how can you go into a potential client company and know in relatively short order, sometimes within minutes, that you can work with them and and it probably in one way or another will work out right? And I said, the, the, the answer for me, one of the critical metrics is that there's humor. There's playfulness. There is that sort of ability to see different sides of a challenge or an opportunity, and and you know it's it's odd. It's worked out quite well over time. But but so I'm i I'm, I'm not in the 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 game of of uh, force feeding people fun. But I just you you have to create cultures or co-evolve cultures that just make coming to work not a strain. I can hear my
0: audience asking. What is the point of a labradoodle?
1: <laughs> well, actually, it's funny. But uh, uh, Louise Gellerup who's our CEO, her response was uh, partly, "How the have you got Secret Service sort of uh, stalking me?" But then she said, "When well, when they came to choosing." Uh, the Labradoodle. It was to do with allergies. It was to do with, uh, you know, temperament. It was a, and, and you know, the, the, that um, Labradoodle, Flossie, is now on our website as one of our team. So I think something like Chief Happiness Officer, not quite, that was the uh, Just Foods uh, formula. But um, yeah, I just, I think dogs of the right so- sort are just, you know, they're, they make people feel comfortable and, anchored and so on so I don't have a dog myself but there we
0: go oh okay I, I have two dogs and I can honestly say that they're kind of like my best friends they always listen yeah. and they uh they'll always be happy
1: to see you unlike my wife <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny I, you know, I I often said I'm uh, more of a cat person than a dog but if it was a dog the sort of dog that I would uh, incline towards would be a lurcher and they're, they're very uh, sort of left field uh, animals and, and pretty rangy. But, but there's something about their wild intelligence, which I quite like.
0: I've had both. So to me, it's a bit like saying I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a parent, but I'm, I'm the one that likes the happy type of child. Cats cats are fun because they're moody and cats and yes. dogs are fun because they're not. You know, that, that diversity in, in, in the two makes it. I, don't, yeah. it was I think
1: it's partly cats are their own creatures and that's quite what I like about them. But
0: yeah. There is a chance we're going off topic.
1: There is a chance. <laughs> I don't know. I might be it wrong. You may but. be absolutely sort of, plumb centre in, in the topic but there's, there's
0: some metaphor there that's that's quite interesting but um, tell us about the book you've just written not I, i'm getting you to plug it but i'm i'm interested in what, <laughs> where your mind's been recently
1: well it's it's um it's my 20th and some books have worked out spectacularly well and some have just bombed and partly it's it's a question of timing it's partly um does the the stories almost speak for itself and in this particular case um I originally started to write a book around artificial intelligence and, uh, because I'd been visiting people in that uh, field and I was quite interested to see how they thought and I was quite worried about some of the things I was uh, in the process of discovering. But the publishers uh, that the book was proposal was pitched to said, actually, there's too much on AI. Uh, and so I, I'd been casting around for a different way of framing it. And uh, I'd long uh, really admired the work of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, So his book, The Black Swan, came out just before the 2007-2009 financial discontinuity or crash or contained depression or whatever we call it. Um, And his view was that there are these events that come along and and that um, uh, crash was, in his mind, a black swan, um, which are a complete surprise. We didn't expect it. We should have expected a crash, but we didn't. Uh, Secondly, they have an impact that's off the scale greater than people are actually uh, used to. Um, And then thirdly, afterwards, we sit down and try and understand what's just happened to us. And we sort of get the wrong end of the stick. And so it's interesting that a lot of people have been saying that COVID-19 is a black swan. And Taleb himself is saying, no, it isn't. People did see it coming. It wasn't or it shouldn't have been. Uh, a surprise. So that, that that was the kickoff point. And I thought, well, actually, a lot of these black swans are things that take us exponentially where we don't want to go. And So the book is full of examples like plastics in the ocean and antibiotic resistance and obesity, uh, chronic disease, to, uh, type 2 diabetes and so on, space debris, the climate emergency, all of these sort of wicked problems that are getting, uh, it se- seems, almost inexorably uh, worse. So I said, what would it be like if you had solutions that went the opposite direction. They took us exponentially where we did want to go. What about Green Swans? So the the title of the book is Green Swans. The subtitle is The Coming Boom, because people uh, like uh, booms when they're in uh, business, in regenerative capitalism. And you know, we can talk about that perhaps, but um, I just think I've mentioned the term sustainability and I've been one of the champions of that. But I think we got to one of those points where we really got to rethink what we mean uh, by terms uh, like that. But that's the book.
0: Great. Well, we'll put the link uh, in the broadcast below. Anyone that's interested can can grab that. Um, I know I am. I think that there's an interesting point you're making there about black swan events, actually. And I and I I know a lot of people out there right now listening, are, are perhaps. Losing their job, or they're rethinking yeah. whether or not they like the job they they have, and I guess black swan event is it a negative thing or a positive thing? And 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 I think a lot of the things you're talking about, there it's about how people react to the problem, isn't it? Yeah. So is it the black swan event? You could say is COVID, but depending on how you react to it, whether or not there's a positive or, or negative. I think obesity is a good example of that. You read about what, <laughs> what obesity does to you. you now, If you read that yeah. and then you adjust your lifestyle and eat better and, and so on, then you know, that, can, that, can, that can be a positive impact on you or you continue to eat badly and it has a negative impact on you, right?
1: No, it's absolutely true. And I think um, in a way, uh, diabetes is almost uh, a pandemic um, and it's been created uh, in large part by our diets uh, and by our increasingly sedentary, you know, sitting around uh, lifestyles. Um, And for many years, I worked with the world's biggest insulin provider, Nova Nordisk, in in Denmark. Um, And what was striking about that company was they could have looked at diabetes basically as a goldmine because the pandemic is is spreading very rapidly around the world. One of the worst countries is Mexico, where I've worked. China, with a single child family, has spoiled a generation or several generations of children, so their body uh, weight is much higher than it really ought to be. So they've set themselves up for this time bomb um, of diabetes. So Nova Nova Nordis could have sat back and said, fabulous, now we're going to coin it. But they didn't. They thought, what are the implications of this? And one of the implications would be that in weaker countries, poorer countries, it could the costs of maintaining people with diabetes could collapse public health care systems. So Nova Nordic started to understudy uh, or learn from uh, NGOs, activist organizations like Oxfam to say, how do you actually campaign to get people to be more sensible with their diet, more sensible with their um, exercise regimes? And how could they or we work with, for example, cities, city administrations, city mayors, to get people to think about this more intelligently. So a part of what I've done over the years is try and find companies like that, and there aren't many, um, and, and and help them do more of that sort of thing, to sort of head off some of these wicked problems at the, at the pass.
0: It's uh, all interlinking, uh, all the things that you're doing, I think. And I, one thing I'd just like to jump back to something you said earlier, yeah. which is um, don't work too hard on it. Now, what happens in the entrepreneur world is anyone that's listening to, you know, how to become an entrepreneur, what they'll hear from a lot of gurus is work hard, work hard, grind, grind, 19 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, you work, it will, it, you'll get luckier. Um, yeah. you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Things like that thrown around. But what you're talking about when you say don't work too hard, I think I want a lot of people to pick up on that. I don't want that to get lost, actually, because I think that is gold. Because I think so often people think that working hard is going to equal success, but it won't necessarily equal sustainability or fun, yeah. which, which is very important. And what you're talking about, when then taking you know, that point you made earlier and, and elongating it to what you're talking about right now, you know, definitely companies, I think, have to have that mindset too. It's not about coining it now. Yeah. It's, it's about thinking about the long-term impact of coining it now. You know, if the healthcare system collapses, then that's, that's not good for sustainability long-term.
1: No, it's not good for anyone. Um, uh, But, you know, my wife uh, is somewhere else in the house. We've been together for 52 years. She would be cackling if she could hear this um, uh, conversation, because she would say, I've worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the last 50 years. So I'm not saying don't work hard, but I'm saying in the middle of that, recognize that you've got to give yourself space in order to enjoy life while it's there, rather than simply just strapping yourself to the treadmill and and, and um, just assuming at some stage you'll earn enough money uh, to sort of basically buy yourself out of the system that you've just created. Um, so I, I, I am saying that if you're going to do something that is really going to move the needle, you probably are, unless you're incredibly fortunate and you have this sort of, sudden brainwave and can just see ways to do things you're going to have to work quite hard and you're going to have people around you who uh, also work hard and do so effectively uh, and uh, to some degree efficiently over time but the fun element actually screws up to some degree the efficiency partly what you're i've always said that the the, I, i was once in australia about 30 years ago and i was asked in public uh, I think in Sydney, a major conference. Somebody said, "What is your most important strategic tool?" And I just went in the instant. I went back and said, "Our sofas, our couches," because that's where the conversations happen. That's where people relax. That's where some of the stuff that you wouldn't otherwise thought of um, comes to mind, or where people come in from the outside, and you know, you just get comfortable with with each other and with with um, new people. And I think certainly in in in, in my world um that flow of people that flow of thinking that flow of ideas has been incredibly uh important
0: i think what you're talking about there another way of framing it, is is work-life balance because i yeah. i i feel like working hard only it only feels that way if you're perhaps not working on something you really love you no know, yeah. there's there's that's that sounds to me um so stop your wife laughing for a minute uh, about this. You know, I, think, I think basically you know, there's an element of you, you, you're willing to work 24 hours a day mindset thinking about it and so on in seven days a week because actually it's your life. It's lifestyle. It's not, I'm not working today, therefore I shouldn't be thinking about it anymore. Because these problems don't go away because you stop thinking about them, first of all. And you're working on some pretty big things and you're thinking about some pretty important things. So, but isn't that a lot of people ask me that question about work life balance? And, And my answer personally is always, there's no such thing. What do you think?
1: I think there can be. And I think if you're doing work that you don't really enjoy every moment of the day, uh, then um, work-life balance is incredibly important because, you know, even in uh, activist organizations, groups like Friends of the Earth, I've seen campaigners and activists burn themselves out because they're so committed. They don't give uh, themselves time to um, do the right thing for their health or whatever, including their mental health um so i think work-life balance remains very important but like anything that gets professionalized and institutionalized and so on it to some degree gets quite boring uh, too so I, I also recognize that it's an in- immense privilege to find yourself in a field where you actually do get um uh, constant uh positive feedback from what you're doing that you really do uh, enjoy it um, I mean it doesn't mean that there aren't disasters along the way and sometimes catastrophes of course there are but um, just uh, I don't know I just I, I, I can think of very few other things that I could have done with the amount of pleasure if I can put it that way as, as what I've done even though as I said back to your question around success uh, in, in many ways at the big picture level it hasn't been a success. I think, you know, our species has continued to trash uh, the planet. Now, things have got better in in critical areas, and I'm sure we'll continue uh, to do so. But the point of the book is that if we simply try to do things incrementally, this isn't going to work. And that's where most people currently are. Let's do a little bit more, be a little bit more transparent, a little bit more accountable, and it'll work out right. Well, no, it won't. Um, We've really got to go exponential. And that's Part of my last sort of seven or eight years has been trying to think about how do we do that? And how do we do that through business? And, uh, you know, it's, it's still a, an inquiry underway.
0: I think you're talking there, in my view, again, about like, human mindset change as well. I mean, I yeah. think for so many people, I mean, I had this conversation recently with someone where I'm like, you know, are you doing what you love every day? Is it purposeful to you? They're like, no, but eventually I'll, I'll pay my mortgage off and then I'll be happy. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, well, you know, you are going to die, right? So, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time left. Is it really worth it just to own a property at the end of it? You know, yeah. like, but people, they don't think they're going to die. They don't think they're going to die. And that's the only certainty we've got. They try to then translate that into making people realize how, you know, bad diabetes is for them, even if it's not yeah. affecting them. You know, they, people can't make that, that correlation. Uh, so what, what's your, been your experience? When you say positive feedback, I think a lot of people are quite negative about this as well, right?
1: well it's funny that sort of death thing you know i've, I've except for when i was a child I've, I've never been uh it's it's the matter of how you die rather than whether you die and and as i said earlier on i've I've always wanted to be gone by the time i was 70 simply because i didn't want to hang around when i was uh, not terribly useful i you know having had parents who lived such long lives i i i think maybe i'm i'm going to be around for a little bit um longer but i i, I I don't fear death Uh, and and again I'm not sort of trying to stack up a legacy but I do feel an obligation in a way to the younger people now and the generations to come to try and ensure that as best we can they are born into to some degree inherit a world that is better than we found it. Now that's going to be really hard because you know since I was a child so many of the things I care for. Haven't got better. I mean, technology's got better, and uh, you know, lifespans have got better, and uh, healthcare's got better. If it weren't for modern pharmaceuticals and so on, I would have died at least twice. Um, so I you know I acknowledge the the joys and the pleasures of modern uh, life, but that 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 sense of almost culpability, of blame for what's happened, and that sense of responsibility for really pushing other people to think different. And it is about mindsets. It's it's trying to shift people from the point of view where they think, you know, that's somebody else's problem, that's government's problem or whatever it is, and I'll, I'll protect my children or grandchildren or whatever, to actually we're all in this together and not just the human species, every species uh, is somehow in this. Just a tiny final just flip point on the work-life balance um, uh, front. I was on a call earlier on today with a very interesting young man who works for a, a a surfboard company on 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 the continent, and he he told me the story of how he he was um, uh, sailboarding with a friend, and the friend was almost killed, almost drowned, and both of them in that moment thought, "What are we doing with our lives?" and concluded that neither of them were doing uh, work that they really wanted to do. So this guy said. Actually, I've always wanted to work with a surf company. So six years later, he moved to a different city, now works with a brilliant uh, company in in the surfing space. So it's probably easier to do that when we're younger than when we're sort of locked into an organization, uh, locked into a career path. I think one of the great things about the modern world is that increasingly those sort of uh, jobs for life trajectories are increasingly not happening, even in places like Japan, where they were uh, absolutely standard uh, for so long. So there are more opportunities to sort of stand back and think, what do I really want to do with the rest uh, of my life? And really what I want to do with the rest of my life is not just more of what I've been doing, because, you know, that's been effective up to a point, but not sufficiently to hit that big metric of success, but to sort of reinvent what we do. And that I like because it's like being a surfer. It's like being on that leading edge of a new wave and having to make it up as you go along. I love being in that uh, space where everything is happening in the instant and you're having to make things up as you go along.
0: Yeah, I, I, One of the reasons I wanted to interview you, cause I resonate with a lot of the way you think. And I want people to, to grasp some of the knowledge that you have, like this reinvent yourself point. I think a lot of people today can reinvent themselves. I mean, I, again, I'm taking age out of the equation. I don't think it matters what yeah. age you are. You can reinvent yourself. The only da- downside can be if you perhaps, for example, got a lot of payments going out every month and you've got yeah. to perhaps stay in the job you're in to make those payments. So I'm also an advocate of reducing debt if you can. But but I would say how you live, not how you die, matters. Um, so that kind of uh, that, that, that near-death experience can actually make people realize perhaps what they've been doing isn't, isn't enough or isn't isn't the legacy um so it's it's a definitely an interesting thing
1: oh, this is for the the cutting room floor but in terms of near-death experiences i did have one i took lsd back in the 60s and um it lasted four years um wow i'm very pleased <laughs> there's going to be some I people in that. the
0: comments now wanting to know where you bought that from <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's partly the wiring of your brain, not simply what you um, put into it. But part way through that, I had a an experience which was, you know, where you separate out from your body. You're up against the ceiling. You've got a long silver cord. I went to see my grandmother, my favorite grandmother, um, and I had many grandmothers, um, uh, about a week later, and she said, hello, darling, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I took LSD last um, week, and she said, tell me about it. So I told her about what had happened, and she said she di- almost died in South Africa when she was 12. Um, and exactly the same thing had happened to her. She'd been up against the ceiling looking back at her body, long sort of uh, silver thread back into her body. Well, how odd was that just to have had the same experience and then have a grandmother who was uh, open to having that conversation? Another reason why I think conversation is at the root of all of this. We've really got to work out how to talk to each other uh, and be quite honest about What we've done and what has worked and and what hasn't, because very often we can learn so much from what didn't work.
0: Oh, I I couldn't agree more. I love I love talking about failure. I love it when people talk about failure. You learn so much more than from success. Part of my premise of this podcast is success can often just be attributed to luck. Failure, however, you quite often know where you went wrong (laughs) and can learn from it. And your point about conversation is also so true. I mean, my, my grandparents have passed away now, but so many times I tried to talk to them about my, my mother uh, and her history because my, my grandfather, long story short, um, actually yeah. had to take my mother away from her real mother when she was about one years old. And, but they never want to talk about it. I always want to understand what yeah. went wrong, especially as a father myself now. You know, what happened? What, what, you know, what can I learn From them they never wanted to talk about it it was like we don't want to talk about it and i and i still regret i have today that they wouldn't talk about it because you're very lucky to have a grandmother that will let you have an open conversation about about taking LSD, and then you probably both learned something (laughs)
1: um it's funny because um i you know my father was a battle of britain pilot he wouldn't talk about that for a very long time afterwards and i just say that simply to say to people just persist and don't sort of try and sort of chisel the knowledge out of people but just set up the conditions to where they feel uh better able to share what it is that happened to them and what they learned uh from that and i look back at his career and in fact i just two days ago discovered something he'd written uh for myself and my siblings which was and he, he did a series of things but one of them was about luck and about how he was shot down in, in the battle of britain which saved his life paradoxically because, you know, his squadron was decimated in the coming weeks while he was in hospital. He was blown back over land by his flight uh, leader, something that never happened before, never happened since. And then you just go through his life and you see time and again, he was on the convoys around to Russia. Um, His convoy was the only one that wasn't attacked either way. So he survived. Um, He was in a squadron that was sent to uh, beat up, tanks on the D-Day beaches, uh, and instead he was sent to India. So 38 of the 40 people in his squadron were killed uh, uh, during D-Day, and he was sent off to India. The two of them were sent off, uh, and the other man was shot down and beheaded by the Japanese. And just time and time and time again, he had these lucky moments. Now, I don't count on that, because one of my absolute core values is serendipity, which is not relying on luck. It's creating the conditions and a lot of it's intuitive where luck can flow towards you where the future can come to you in a way that uh, you can engage with and, 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 and hopefully do the right sort of um, thing. It, it's something I, I've never had a manual. I've never had a, uh, uh, um, a blueprint that I could work from. It's a, a lot of it is instinctive, but it, not, luck is nice. But I think serendipity is absolutely critical.
0: Yeah. I like the philosophy. In the um, point about luck, my view, is that actually there should be two definitions of luck in the dictionary. And I'm on mm-hmm. a mission to update the dictionary because I think right now there's only yeah. one, this kind of random concept of luck, which you could argue where you're born. And yeah. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your childhood in a minute. But where you're born and then, of course, there's the other type of luck, which is what you're talking about, I think, where you can influence it. And there's a lot out there, including stuff I've personally written about how you can influence luck. But, um, you know, yeah. ultimately, um, you know, that, that there, there, is, there is two really, isn't there? Because, I mean, you could argue COVID is yeah. no one's fault. It's, you know, bad luck, good luck, depending on your perspective as well. Because I think perspective is a very important element of luck,
1: right? I also think it's a systemic um, issue that if you if you build a global economy that is linked by subways and uh, um, airways and so on and you get involved in wildlife trafficking and digging guano out of bat caves and so on and then you don't properly monitor uh, viruses when they inevitably escape and you're uh, involved in cutting down forests and so on the chances of pandemics hitting the global population are radically enhanced. So I think one of the lessons I hope we're learning from all of this is not only there will be more pandemics and there will be worse ones, uh, but that more and more of the crises that we and the opportunities that we face are systemic. Everything links now to everything else, and our brains don't necessarily uh, do that. So I think part of what I've, if I have brought value over the years, it's by it's by well my job title is chief pollinator it's 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 linking things that wouldn't otherwise necessarily be uh, linked in the in the hope and belief that there will be some form of hybrid vigor that comes out of all of that
0: i love the word pollinate as well i think it's um you know kind of reminds you how important the ecosystem is that yeah. we're all actually interconnected again i think sometimes worlds become quite it's about me it's about what i've got i'm all right i've got food I'm, I'm, you know, that kind of mindset at, um, I do like chief polony
1: <laughs> Well, it, In a way, that's where the sofas and so on come in because, and, and the traveling, because you just, it's one of the great privileges of, 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 of this field, such as it is that you, you're constantly meeting people who are both interesting and, and, and interested, but actually quite different. I mean, there's hugely diverse people coming into this space now scientists technologists economists physicists i mean you name it uh, and just ordinary people you said just before we started that no you were know, skeptical about university education and i do think education now is breaking out of the classroom it's breaking out of the lecture halls it's it and covid 19 has given that a really big shunt so people are pr- willing to uh learn in new ways by god the opportunities are there there now i mean the it's not just the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's not even Wikipedia. They're just the level of knowledge that is out there and accessible is extraordinary.
0: I couldn't agree more. I actually think that's partly why there's such a big burst in podcasts too, because there's yes. so much knowledge out yeah. there that people want to plug into and, and po- podcasts are well, perhaps the the company for you on the sofa right now if you've got it. To- keep distant from people. But I'm just thinking right now about, you know, setting up a company with a CPO and a CFO. The CFO is the chief fun officer and the, and the chief pollinator <laughs> officer. It sounds like the beginnings of a whole new company structure. Is this book
1: yeah. 21? I see the thing veering all over the road, but it could indeed be fun. Um, yeah. Well yeah. Last.
0: Would you get any investors? I don't know. Uh, chief <laughs> I, I, mad officer. I think,
1: I think the, um, the answer is uh, you, you've had... Um, Companies, particularly in Silicon Valley, uh, coming up with sort of chief happiness officers, and 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 I think increasingly people do realize that culture is crucial to sustained success and creativity, and fun has to be an emergent uh, property of that. But I just my point earlier on was just if you if you do have a chief fun officer and it's almost like disney can't help you because you know you're all sort of having to goose step uh to have fun and i just think that's not going to work
0: that's making 40 year olds walk around in the baking heat wearing (laughs) a duck outfit (laughs) hardly fun but um no yeah i mean culture is an interesting thing i get asked that a lot my listeners ask a lot about how to install culture how to create culture i have a my own view which is sometimes it's about how you start the business actually one of the reasons i think facebook has a real problem today it's in fact how the business started where Mark Zuckerberg stole someone else's idea. And he might have yeah. executed it better than anyone else on the planet. But ultimately, we all know it wasn't his idea. And if your yeah. culture starts off that way, you're willing to steal someone's idea. Why wouldn't you really steal someone's data? Yeah. You know, and so now this won't get shared on Facebook. It will get blocked. But, you know, my point being just being open <laughs> about it, sometimes that's how culture starts, doesn't it? It starts yeah. by your very actions in the early days on a personal level, even if it's got nothing to do with what the company's doing
1: well it's, it's funny just thinking back in the, in the four organizations i've been practically involved in in co-founding there, there's always been a tension at their heart there've there, there always been people who have actually really liked each other and actually on occasions sort of really loved each other and yet there has been this constant friction between people who see the world differently and are prepared to speak about those differences and and, and with the co-founder of sustainability for example uh, Julia Hales. I often used to sort of, we used to go and see companies like Procter and Gamble, and ferociously disagree in public, rather than singing from the same uh, song sheet. I mean, about whether animal welfare was uh, important or whatever it was, and and the right sort of clients would say, actually, we get as much value out of seeing how that interplay happens as we do about practically what you're you're advising us um, to do. And I think that tension. Remains absolutely critical because if you don't have that, and I don't think Zuckerberg does have it, uh, I, I think he's surrounded by people who just think he's God. Um, you, if you don't have it, uh, you, you're going to pay for it over time, and I think Putin will pay, and I think Trump's going to pay, Bolsonaro is going to pay, and Duterte, and all of these different uh, populist dictators, and we find them in business as well, uh, sadly.
0: I, I, but they'll always I, be
1: with yeah. us because yeah.
0: Well, you need them as well. You you need them. I think. Trump I'm not a fan uh, I have a lot of listeners that are fans of Trump yeah. and that's fine but I I'm not and that and I feel like however what he is good at is creating a conversation about what's wrong with what he's doing and so yeah. in some respects people need that as a as a counterpoint to just as you say the Procter Gamble example you know like these guys need that debate because it's yeah. happening anyway yeah. however, however you know the, the people are having these conversations and I think it's good to have it in the open and to hear what people think so that you can frankly adjust and survive
1: yeah no, I, I, I think that's a crucial element of healthy cultures mm.
0: and, and, I, and i want listeners to pick up on you know, another uh, great insight you're kind of highlighting there around culture i think having conflict is actually nothing wrong with having conflict i think having the ability to have conflict resolution is important right yeah so i mean yeah. i will say to people I've, I've been married happily for 21 years but we probably had an argument every month for that 21 years but that's been healthy <laughs> Yes. You know, so I know plenty of people that say, oh, I never argue with my wife. And they 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 get divorced. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, that tension is probably, you've been married 52 years, did you say?
1: Well, we've been, today is actually our uh, wedding anniversary. We got married in 73, but we actually moved in together in 1968. Right. And what a year that was. Um, so, yeah. have well, thank plenty you. Thank difference. you for
0: giving us time. Um, <laughs> I feel like we should give a big shout out to your, to your, to your wife. What's your wife's name?
1: Elaine Elaine, thank um, you
0: Elaine for giving us John today
1: oh I mean one of the great things is she's sort of immensely flexible she'd have to be wouldn't she but there we go
0: yeah no well I mean that's the other thing I I, I guess you know talking about culture you're talking about uh, people disagreeing with each other I think your partner in life if you're going to start a business you need that partner to be on your side you know too many people I see have a good idea raise good money are willing to work hard but their partner pulls them in the opposite direction
1: Yeah. Well, being being an entrepreneur, as I sometimes have been, that uh, two of the organizations I co founded started off in our family home in the uh, 1980s. And at one stage, we had, I think, five or six people working from a small uh, London home and Elaine sort of put up with that for uh, I think about three or four years and then was just really heartily glad to be shot of that when we moved out into grown-up offices but um, you yeah, that that it was amazing too how that family environment our daughters were uh, quite young then um, really inflected so much of the culture that then shaped those two organizations afterwards it, it sort of goes into the genetic coding in some way the woodwork
0: yeah, the family environment I mean, I have exactly yeah. the same, my, my wife, who supported me my whole career, crazy decisions I made, took my three-year-old son out, who's a handful at the moment, my two dogs, basically, so I can do this podcast show with you today at home, you know, like, in, and, and she doesn't even say, she doesn't complain about it once, and I think... And um, uh, what's her name? Her name's Helen, it's not our wedding that's anniversary, she? <laughs> she gets all she love she <laughs> needs on the 16th of September, you know, that that's... But um, but yeah, but it, it, it's definitely an important part. I want my listeners to pick up on that too, as well. That the partnerships you have in life, conflict is good, right? I mean, do you do you, do you have any tips on conflict resolution?
1: I should do, shouldn't I? Um, I I think part of it is um, never getting to the point where you're locked in and you have no escape, uh, and to be conscious of the fact that people do really come at these issues, whether they're practical work-life balance issues or whether they're what sort of client you should work with or, or what sort of organisation you should work with and, and what's appropriate to do. And one of the things I've often tried to do, generally tried to do, is not to decide on other people's behalf, but to put it out to them. So, for example, there were, there were moments where we were working with clients who I felt it would be appropriate that we resigned from. And we did that uh, several times. Um, and there were other ca- occasions where there was a lot of money on the table for us to work with particular companies. But they were in industries that were really problematic. And so I'd put that out, or we would put that out to the team to vote. And even when it there was a real financial cost uh, to the individual team members, they voted in what I thought was the right way i mean clearly i would try and inform the debate but i didn't um, force it so i think if, if if there is an element of coevolution, the there is more sort of respect across the team perhaps than there would be if somebody at the top decides you know jeff bezos or a uh, zuckerberg or whatever and then you know it's their fault uh, but when things do, do get bad i on occasion we've had Problems in some of the teams. In one case, very long time ago, it went to a uh, a lawsuit which we lost. I mean, it's sort of um, somebody who who claimed uh, unfair dismissal. Um, and when you're a very small organisation, it's very easy to allow emotions to sort of um, ripple through, and then you do suddenly find yourself in a, a court of law, and then you you have to become a little bit more process oriented but I, I i never want to lose that um that startup culture uh, in a way i think there's something about that which is not only exciting and productive uh but it's where i like to be uh, you know I, I i've tried to keep organizations that i've been involved in much smaller than the natural the market would naturally have them and some people are happy with that and others may not be i always yeah. try
0: to translate wisdom like this into kind of a tangible piece of information for people but i think startup culture for example what is startup culture you've got the facebook startup culture which is all about programming and creating you know automated world and then i guess you've got you know there's lots of the culture is an interesting word isn't it because it can also be a negative word
1: yeah and and so you know
0: keeping that culture i think what you're saying there my view my interpretation of what you just said is an element of democracy an, you, you like the de- democratic approach to things like the concept of you know don't decide for other people, let other people yeah. decide for them. In a way, you're saying, OK, this is the decision we need to make. I can make it, but the culture of this company is we're in it together. So what do you guys all think? Is is that is that a fair interpretation of what you're saying?
1: It is, but it's different depending on the sort of company or, talk, or organization your, or industry that you're talking about, because some Some of them are simply about cranking a handle and doing it more efficiently. The whole total quality management um, world was about how, how do you make things more efficient. But at the same time, maybe what you need is a springboard, something that takes you into a very different space where it's uncomfortable. And I think the startup culture is about let's have efficiency where it's appropriate to have it. But let's remember that efficiency often squeezes out resilience and you need resilience if you're going to take big risks. Um, so, you know, that, I think that sort of springboard mindset is, is um, really important uh, as well. And one thing I've learned over a long period is that what suits me and what makes me comfortable in terms of I, I have quite a high appetite for risk doesn't suit other people. And they may not say it, but they are stressed by it. And you know, Sustainability as an organization, I kept off balance for 20 plus years uh, and then I left um, uh, and it, it worked. It was commercially successful. And I think in terms of our impact on, on the wider world, it was successful. But it did, it did strike me afterwards that I should have done more to acknowledge the stress of that, that you're constantly going into new areas where you're constantly having to learn, constantly having to make it up as you go along. That's where I'm happiest, but um, I, th- I think we've got to help our teams if that's what we decide or they decide they want to do. It's not. It's not natural for a, a lot of people. We've got to help them.
0: It's interesting you say appetite for risk. Is that something you've always had, or has the appetite <laughs> grown over time?
1: Um, I think I've always had it. Um, I've been a cyclist for uh, well since 1970 in London. And during that time, I've been uh, unconscious four times. I'd, I'd say,
0: had, how are you still alive?
1: Well, I'd had three broken ribs twice. I think, mostly they're the same uh, ribs. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I finally gave up about three years ago uh, because I was uh, knocked off by uh, a Russian family and um, really damaged my elbow. Uh, I've had. She started cycling again now because it's so... I thought with the Russian
0: family, you were going to do some stereotype that it turned out with some relatives of Putin's and they kind of took the bike away and said, you're never going to bike ride again. And you said, sure.
1: Not at all. But it's it's funny because London, during the period I've lived and worked here, has become not only an international city, but a global city. And we all know that. And so of all of those, I mean, the first person who knocked me off was Indonesian, 1975. Third one was Mongolian. Uh, the fifth one was three young African men uh, new to London, and the sixth one was uh, this young girl who jumped out into Oxford Street in front of me, and I had to throw myself sideways to miss her. And there are people who just don't know the city, not used to it, or in one case actually wanted to kill me, but that's quite another story. (laughs) So I I have a sort of um, appetite for risk. Uh, Luckily, Elaine, my wife, is sort of broadly tolerant of it.
0: Broadly tolerant, but were you like that as a child? I mean, were your parents very encouraging of this kind of purpose-driven way of thinking, or is it something? It's just you no. Know, my my question I have for you is: Are entrepreneurs born or bred? But I wonder: Is, is there a deeper you know, thing that's happened in your life that's made you realise that this was there already, or did your parents give this all to you?
1: I think the enthusiasm and interest uh, in the natural world was there from right from the get-go. Um, in fact, my first memory goes back to uh, that natural uh, world. Um, my father turned out to be a bit more entrepreneurial in later life, but wasn't a natural entrepreneur, although in a way not an accident that he was in the Air Force. If you're going to be in the Armed Forces, the Air Force were probably the, the, the least regimented and, 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 and restricted. But no, I think, I think the entrepreneurial bit sort of crept up on me. It just I, I didn't want to do the conventional things. So the only way to really operate was to set up your own organization and uh, do it that way. So
0: Yeah, I was, I was looking at your CV and, and your first job, it looks like, 1974. I was born in 1974 when it's a senior <laughs> planner and associate director at Transport and Environmental Studies, which sounds like a very senior role. I'm assuming that wasn't your first job, but what did you first start out? You know, Did you do an entrepreneurial thing when you were a kid? Were you selling lemonade in the street in environmentally friendly glass bottles
1: or what? Can you hear the truck outside? There's a truck sort of unloading.
0: Yeah, I can hear it. We love trucks in the background, us, us really? folks on the yeah. no, oh, well, no.
1: He may go eventually, but all right, that's fine. No, no, I don't
0: you... people, we either edit it out or keep it in because it it's funny. We'll see. <laughs> um, Someone's trying to stop people from hearing your, your, your story, you know. That's uh, some environmental, right. anti-environmental group out there trying to block out the
1: noise. Remind me of what the question was.
0: <laughs> I've, I've even forgotten it myself. No, so when you were young, though, I mean, do, do you feel, yeah. you know, when you, was, the, was the entrepreneurial piece there, the risk piece? Because I think for a lot of my listeners that risk is yeah. still an alien concept. In fact, I think it gets trained out of people. Don't take yeah. risk. For example, get a mortgage when you're young. This is one of my pet, pet peeves. Yeah. You know, get a mortgage when you're young. That's safe when you're 60. And like I said, you have a property. But then what about you know taking risk and travelling experiencing the world, those sorts of things that perhaps are more important to your point earlier in the no, podcast? I, th- I, I
1: think um, I, I've, I've always had a risk tolerance. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you from a, a house that we bought in 1975. And when we bought it, it was a complete and absolute ruin. My par- parents-in-law came to see it and they thought we'd gone completely clinically insane. And for four years, I really had to build it from the ground up. I mean, even putting... Uh, new walls under the floorboards and so on. Uh, So, you know, there is a tolerance for risk. But I actually think there's something else. Uh, In in addition to the natural world uh, connection, I think with my parents, we travelled a lot when I was um, a child. So we lived in places like Northern Ireland, we lived in Cyprus, we visited places like Israel and so on. And in a way, when I came back to the UK when I was nine, and I think I felt an outsider. I felt an alien, uh, not in a bad way, particularly, but you just didn't feel a natural part uh, of things. And that outsider mentality, I think, has actually been quite important because in a way what, in, in dealing with business, I, I've been a sort of an environmentalist and a sustainability champion and so on. But I've, I've somehow managed that insider-outsider balance. That, And I've often said to clients, big companies, that if, if it ever comes to the crunch we're probably going to side with the NGOs with the activists, the campaigners they're not uniformly right but broadly they're on the the right side of history and my sense is you're probably not going to be. And very interesting just to see um, Ben Van Vuren the the, uh, CEO of Shell just recently talking about his concern that Shell, which is a company I've worked with in the past, feels that it's on the wrong side of history with fossil fuels and so on um, so I think that outsider mentality, uh, which sort of, you, I again I don't think there's a handbook and uh, and how to be. I was once described as grit and the corporate oyster. So that you're there and you're sort of creating a certain tension. People would rather not be challenged in quite that way, but sometimes because you're challenging in that way, they they get to places or thoughts that they wouldn't otherwise. Uh, get to yeah you can track a lot of it back to uh young younger years but actually i also think the 60s were a crucible in which uh quite a number of people in, in the baby boom generation just changed um and and there were many influences there that i can think back to and i think well that's where some of this stuff came from um yeah so thank you to that lot
0: no, I think it's uh, it's uh, again. I want the listeners to pick up on on this, and not it's such an important piece. I think, which is cultural experiences. How can you build a culture if you've not had experience of lots of cultures? Yeah. So it, it, I think that the upbringing there was what. What I think you're talking about, you kind of answered my question in a way, which is you know, are, are entrepreneurs born or bred? The way I've interpreted your answer is that there's a bread piece there that was always naturally in you. This this yeah. nature. Um, piece but then the bread piece was that experience with the world what was, what, what was out there outside of you know, say England you know what, what else was happening both from an environmental perspective and, and a cultural perspective yeah. and, and that has shaped you into you know your CV today and so I think a lot of people that are listening they may well have and I think a lot of people do have their born entrepreneurs but their environment has bred it out of them. And so- I think
1: that's. I think it's true. And and if I just think back, just a final comment on that sort of childhood was um, my father was very odd. I mean, he he was in the air force, but he wouldn't live on air force bases. He, he was unique in that he would always live in the community, even when it was dangerous to do so. In Northern Ireland, we lived on a farm, uh, and the IRA were around. In Cyprus, we lived in Nicosia, in the heart of the city, not on a. a um, an armed base. Uh, and because of that, I met all sorts of people I wouldn't otherwise have um, uh, met. So I, I, in fact, I owe a considerable debt. He may not have been particularly entrepreneurial, but he was seriously weird. And I think I uh, inherited some of that.
0: One of the main traits of entrepreneur. Ship is, in my view, risk. Sounds like he took a risk. He wanted to be a part of the culture. You know, I think about the Northern yeah. Ireland example you just given there. I mean, he's taking a risk there. The bases are built to protect you from the enemy. Yes. So there yeah. you are, you know, um, sitting with the enemy. But I think that gives you incredible, tangible experience that you will not get if you're stuck inside an ecosystem. Personally, I'm sure this is true for you. If you go on holiday somewhere, I hate staying in these big complexes where you're basically yeah. you might as yeah. well be. Doesn't matter where you are in the world; it's just sunny instead of rainy. But that's it where it's nothing more exciting i've gone to indonesia for example than actually hanging out in the streets i've been to kenya actually hanging out in the streets even living in a street house on a road in kenya that isn't really a road you know that's a real experience you know living in some five-star luxury hotel doesn't really show you what's really going on right that's kind of what you're talking about i think there which is an amazing experience for a young person but i bet when you were young you didn't feel that way did you always feel like you were moving too much
1: no I love the different places that we lived I mean with a sort of real real intensity uh but my main memory is just uh when we would leave um and feeling that you had had friends that you would never see again uh particularly uh, when we left Cyprus um, so that, that that but in a sense that's where that sense of uh being an outsider came from you 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 sort of had to almost protect yourself from knowing that you might get to know people but then you'd sort of be uh, wrenched. There's also
0: um, probably a, a, an yeah. element of counterbalance there. Is why, since 1975, you've lived in the same home? So you, you know, there's there's a time and a place to be moving
1: around a lot, right? Probably, yeah. And I, 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 yeah, I hadn't thought about it particularly, but yes.
0: Do you think your education helped you? <laughs>
1: how, how can how can you know otherwise? Um, and um, the simple answer is during, during the time that we travelled, I had a very fractured uh education and some of it was quite difficult so in northern ireland for example my brother and i were sent to a catholic convent school we were notional protestants there were three notional protestants in the school we got roughed up pretty much every day for three years never really thought about it but you know it it was uh, a suppressed violence because the catholic convent school was embedded in a protestant community and you had this sort of static charge that came through um one of the most extraordinary uh, moments in my entire life, which was foundational, happened because of um, all of that, and 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 the same in, in in we went to an air force school in in, in Cyprus. But when we came back to the UK, I was almost sent to a concentration camp. I mean, it was a, a prep school that did me incredible good, but in the end, the headmaster was sent to an asylum because he was so. Incredibly violent, and, and a lot of that has only come out in, in, in um, uh, recent years. And then I went to a very liberal school, Bryanston, which I think was the making of me. I think it, it, it in, you know, from a very early age, you were encouraged to, to devote your own time to what interested you. And I, by God, I uh, made use of that. And then I went, did go to university twice, it wasn't any expectation of my family. First, to a, 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 a very new and very radical. University, Essex, which blew up while I was there in the student rebellions. Um, In fact, my uh, wife's uh, prior boyfriend was uh, one of the ringleaders of all of that. And then I went after some time to UCL, which is where I uh, studied city planning. Um, And that was more state, that was more static, uh, but it was part of London. And again, both of those universities I used as a springboard to do things that were quite different from what I should have been um learning and actually longer term to your question, I think that served me very well. But I didn't know at the time particularly.
0: I can see as like I mentioned earlier that you you know you worked as a senior planner for a few years and then it seems like your first business, your own business was in nineteen seventy eight, ends report. Yeah, uh, and how, how did you, um, for my listeners I'm trying to understand how to make the transition, say from employment to working for yourself, now what happened there for you? What what was the journey? How did you start your own thing?
1: Um, Well, the Environmental Data Services, which is the company we set up in 1978, there were two other people who were really, really important in setting that up. One had founded a group that was very successful called Incomes Data Services, and they tracked labor relations and so on at the time when unions were very much more uh, powerful. Um, And so he invested in uh, Environmental Data Services or ENDS. And I, the second person, was one of the founders of the environmental movement. Uh, He'd founded the World Wildlife Fund with Peter Scott. His name was Max Nicholson. And I'd been writing while working for a prior um, firm, uh, uh, Transport and Environment Studies or Test. Um, I'd been writing for New Scientist, and I'd been doing a monthly quite major feature. And some of it was quite hard-hitting, let's say. And because of that, Max came to me and said, would I be the founding editor, and then later managing director of um, ENDS. So th- there was, again, a, a degree of serendipity. Max came across me because of something that I was doing that was almost extracurricular. It wasn't something that I was actually meant to be doing part, as part of my professional employment, although it did come into that. And then one thing led uh, to another. And, you know, it was very difficult for the first few years because... Business did not want to talk about safety or health or environment. So again, it was like being a Trojan horse. It was, except that you didn't want to lay waste to what was on the other side of the wall, but you you were trying to get into companies. And initially it was incredibly problematic. You felt yourself really lucky if you got through the front gate and you met PR people or lawyers. Now, I mean, it would be routine to go into the boardroom and, and, and deal with CEOs and, Chief financial officers, not chief fund officers, or whatever. But um, so it it was a campaign. I mean, I look back now, and it was very much a style of activism. But it was almost on a business to business basis. We were a limited company that gave people some sense that we were um, legitimate in a way, or or, or not completely anti business. Um, yeah. I mean, I wish I wish there was an easy way of saying here's the formula. But in every case, it was something that felt at the time like a natural progression that felt quite exciting to be involved in, a bit of a challenge. Um, was it a yes
0: yeah. as soon as you were asked to do this? It was like, yeah, I'll be a founding editor for no, this? No, I mean-
1: it wasn't. In fact, I asked Max um, to fund a project for six weeks where I could stay with the original firm, Test, and they were paid for the work. But at the end of it, I actually felt, actually, there's something here which is really important to do. And I'd written about business uh, before, but I hadn't actually worked for business. So I thought this is actually a, uh, an interesting next step. Um, but it, it, there's also been a, an odd balancing um, act that we've, when we set up sustainability, for example, in 1987, uh, we'd, um, we were working on a book called the Green Consumer Guide, which ended up selling a million copies and going into 20 foreign language editions and so on. But it was a major headache for the companies that we actually wanted to work with. Um, And two of them sued us. Uh, McDonald's sued us and um, ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries, which paradoxically was a client at the time, but a different part of the company, three different parts of the company sued us. We won all of those court cases. Um, but <laughs> that must have been scary at say, the time.
0: You really do have high risk appetite. I, I, well, I, deal I, I with McDonald's, I see I coming after me, but even talking about them on this podcast show scares me.
1: Well, it's funny <laughs> because, um, uh, w- I went to see uh, a lawyer, our own lawyer, uh, to say, What do we do? and he said, Look, you've got no choice, just you've got to cave in, these people will crush you, uh, whether you're right or wrong. And then just as I was standing up to leave, he said, Okay, unless of course you want to play poker and I'd never played poker in my life but I knew the nature of the game and that very night I went down to Cardiff to do a a radio broadcast it was the BBC um, it was eight million listeners uh, the comedian uh, Pamela Stevenson was on the panel it Was the guy who was a rock uh, star and there was um, a, a television scientist and after the broadcast, which was live, a couple of people from McDonald's came up and said, you know, during the broadcast, you talked about the allegations. Uh, and I said, well, it wasn't me. It was the rock star uh, from Hue and Cry. Um, uh, and they, they said, well, you know, you can't do that. You've got your subject of an injunction. Uh, and then I thought, well, this is the poker moment. And they said, um, I said, w- we're now actually going to go to court. We found enough on McDonald's to uh, really drag you through the mud. And they, the, the two women had come up. It was rather unkind of me. But but they then said, oh, would you talk to our president? And I said, well, if he'll call me. Um, and it was a he. And he rang the next morning. And and um, he said, what do you want to get off our backs? And I told them. And they then spent uh, about a month doing what we'd asked them to do. And then we had this incredible set piece um, Meeting with their lawyers and a big tower block in London, and it was one of those moments. You know, they basically were going to kill our company, um, but in the end, they didn't. And right at the end of the process, they said, "Would we work with them?" And my answer was never. Mm. On the basis of what we've seen, but I didn't. I didn't go into that knowingly, thinking that's how it's going to play out. Mm. But once it had started, it's like being committed to a wave on a surfboard. You just you have to do. You have to go through with it. I think
0: there's such, there's such a fantastic insight there again, you know, in, in a way you're still talking about being an outsider too, but to to these big companies that, who do put a lot of pressure on people, um, and, and like you say, you feel like you're going to lose for sure, pushing back and being an outsider can, can scare them. It's not David Goliath not wanting to get religious about it, but, or, or that whole concept that actually, I've had a similar situation, by the way. Yeah. i had a similar situation where I but I think the key of course is that you know are you on the right side of history that's the question yeah. I ask myself have I, have I am I actually wrong here or are they actually wrong in the eyes of no, the, the planet <laughs> and so you know I think ultimately uh, like Nelson Mandand is a good example You go to prison for it in the end people are going to know yeah. the truth right in the end you're going to be a hero if you are on the right side of history just a question of time isn't it
1: no guarantees, um, but you have and, to play poker. That's I,
0: brave. That was brave to play that game. Well,
1: glad you won. But it, but it, yeah, but it's funny because um, uh, I, I think about uh, that sort of uh, risk that's come through, and part of what we've always done is never to assume that the people we're working with in business are bad people. Mm. You know, they, they may be doing bad things, but but there is there is a separate, sometimes it's because they don't know. Sometimes it's because they feel that they have no choice. Um, but there are bad people, uh, and 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 when you come across them, you have to uh, stand up. And I remember once having a stand-up row with Rex Tillerson, who went on to become Trump's Secretary of State, but he was then CEO of ExxonMobil. And I was in Stavanger, I was talking to a conference of about 300 uh, fossil fuel people, and I was talking about how Exxon had corrupted the political process around climate change uh, for a very long time. And Tillerson walked into the back of the room with his entourage, and bawled across these sort of non-plus conference uh, delegates. That's a goddamn lie, Uh, but I I, I should do it in a much more robust voice. Um, And then about two weeks later, the media were all carrying the story that that's exactly what they have been doing. Um, So I I had based it on the facts, but every so often, and and he and I had this sort of really quite charged um, row, uh, and in the end sort of it was... We ended up daggers drawn, but um, no, sometimes you just have to take a stand where, where people are, are, are almost criminally wrong. And I think Exxon have been uh, pretty much criminally wrong on climate change. You, you've got to stand your ground so that I always say we're not we're not neutral. We're trying to be objective and professional and neutral about 15 to 20 years in the future. Mm. So trying to bring what the future will would require from us back into the present world and articulate that somehow.
0: I think people not being neutral is good, actually. I think that's one of my problems with media. They pretend that they're neutral. I mean, you and I met each other in a telegraph debate. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, you can kind of, you know, if you... Do enough digging what side they lean. But, but I, I don't think there's enough transparency. It's one of the reasons I like The Economist, for example. I like reading The Economist because at least they tell you their opinion. And you know yeah. that it's their opinion. This is their view. But I think so often, I mean, definitely in business, a lot of the time, companies have to co-tail to the big corporates to get their business. Yeah. So that's a tricky game yeah. to play, I guess, especially in a business where you're still, you know, you're, like you've described a few of your businesses, they're still looking to generate income to make them sustainable, right?
1: Yeah, and I I, I like the Economist too. I particularly like the Financial Times, but the Economist has gone through periods of being switched on to the agenda that I'm sort of trying to serve and being at other times being incredibly snarky. Mm -hmm. Um, And you look both at The Economist now and The Financial Times, a lot of the other Bloomberg style media, business media, and they're absolutely overflowing with content, not just on climate change, but on ESG investment and all these different aspects. It's an astonishing moment in all of this where a lot of stuff that we've been experimenting with is suddenly coming into the mainstream so it's an immensely exciting moment but again challenging because once these things mainstream some of the definitions and ideas and concepts and so on get diluted because people have their invested interests, which they bring uh to bear so it's, it's it's it it won't always be fun but by god it'll be exciting totally
0: well um you've written 20 books so i've got a feeling i could speak to you all day long the amount of insight and <laughs> knowledge you've got I just—it just blows my mind. I've written one book, which will be out in November, and that's that one book of twelve chapters. has covered my whole life, so I don't know how you managed to do twenty. And uh, I would I, love
1: to see that when it comes oh, out. Oh, so thank
0: I'm, you very much. Yeah, well, I'll—I'll uh, I'll send you a copy. But uh, but I am—I am um, going to read all your books, and I'm excited. I think a lot of my I listeners. Um, I wouldn't. No.
1: Because I think no, I wouldn't. I I, I can suggest uh, three or four that I would recommend, but it's it's just that. Some of them were you no know, period pieces. Um, I, for example, one of them was called. I, it was it was a penguin. It was 1985. It was called the Poisoned Womb, and um, it was about reproductive toxicology, which sound will sound completely wild and out of frame for a lot of your listeners. But Ted Hughes, he was then the um, poet laureate, did a poem around the book, and it was published in the Times and so on. So some some of these things have ripple effects but the book itself I think it stood the test of time but I wouldn't I know I, I wouldn't uh, recommend that one as sort to, of main to,
0: to me it's script. like when you find a director that you like you know you might watch yeah. some of their old movies and not be exactly but you like the genre you know you like you like the style or you watch them learn as they create these things by the way I'm dyslexic so reading actually what I mean is my wife will read them to me so let's see if I can get her to read all 20 of your books to me <laughs> But um but certainly I'm going to read the uh, later one. I don't re-
1: I don't recommend that sort of purgatory on on any of uh anyone. But um no. anyway, no. but thank you for the expression of interest
0: no i'm going to read the green swan that's for sure and thank you for giving us your time I, I absolutely would love to have you back on i've got a whole series of things i've written down that actually i'd like to talk about um innovation um, and go deeper into things like culture talk about um the green swan a little bit more so i'd love to have you back i'm going to sum up what i've taken away from today very quickly um but i just okay. before i say it, i just want to say thank you so much for taking your time out especially on your wedding anniversary day so <laughs> thank I appreciate you that so much i'm excited to see what you do in the next ten to fifteen years, myself and my listeners, we're here if you need anything to help in any of the causes that you're championing on our, on our behalf. Thank so thank you. But I'm going to quickly sum up some of the things I've I've taken away. I think uh, letting people decide, don't decide other, other people's, um, let, don't decide on other people's behalf is something I really resonates with me, and although people might translate that as I did into democracy it is an interesting thing you know not to let people be trapped give people options I think in business this is something not talked about enough but co-founders yeah. for example often fall out with each other sometimes it's the argument for not having marriage because people feel trapped you know but but it's not marriage that's the makes you trapped it's your mindset and I think giving people the option to make decisions and, and, and having mm-hmm. an open debate about things even if you don't agree with them is, is a fantastic bit of insight there. I I do like this concept of reinvent yourself. I think that's very current for today's world. I think a lot of companies should do it. And and it's good to hear some examples you've highlighted there of people that are thinking long term and not just about how they can profit. I was just looking at Amazon and Jeff Bezos being $400 billion richer since COVID began. You know that, yeah. that that doesn't seem right to me, um, but having said that, you know, he can reinvent himself and give some of that uh, success back into the system, then you know that's what it's about, I think. As on, on an individual level, as you mentioned earlier, people now have many chances and many careers in life. There's no longer one job like it was in Japan, as you yeah. mentioned, for your whole life, but there really is an opportunity to reinvent yourself. I reckon there's six, seven, eight, nine, ten careers in a lifetime now, so now. you know, reinventing yourself is such a powerful um, phrase I want people to take home. Um, I love. Like this concept that you know, you're lucky to get shot down. You told that story. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's such a good uh, expression of for life. Actually, we should make it into a T-shirt. You know, you might think getting <laughs> shot down was bad I'm going to write
1: that one down.
0: Yeah, I think I think you. You know, you, you might find you're lucky to get shot down. That there's there's a, there's something in it. Of course, we mentioned it a few times, but I love it too. Which is this: be an outsider. I think so many people don't realize that you know a lot of people that I know myself I went and lived overseas for a while and I built a company yep. and in a way being being a foreigner in that country was a benefit because I didn't understand the culture so I didn't in, in a, not, I didn't know what people were thinking about me I didn't know how people were judging me because I didn't understand the culture so I just went and built stuff and so sometimes in England for example a lot of people get trapped into the culture of how much money you're making what car do you drive where do you live as if any of this stuff matters it doesn't you go live in a foreign place or go live in a new location, and you're an outsider. It's very empowering. So, if you can't move overseas, just change your mindset. Be an outsider. Don't have to yeah. follow what everyone else is doing. And buy a house when you're 18 necessarily. You know, there's there's lots of options, and I, and I like people to take that home uh, from this podcast today. I, I, and finally, I, you know, I, I say two things. One is I love this business model. It's kind of like which you mentioned at the beginning, which is you know make a profit, and you know have a rule in there where you can't be pushed around. It allows you to stick to your culture and your moral code and those things, and then have fun. Those kind of three elements to me are just the best kind of business model um, you can possibly have. And I mo myself,
1: I've tried make to it, make it, a difference does come in there, Simon. Absolutely. Completely.
0: Yes. I think, I think yeah. overarching my final words on this, you know, purpose. Mm-hmm. When I read your CV, okay. purpose comes through. And I think that's, what, you know, that's why you've worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and your wife's not, mind, not minded that at all. And, and you, of course, today looking at the future as, as an exciting opportunity because it's purpose. At the top of it all, from everything you've said, I feel like you've got a strong purpose. I hope people take that energy and put that into their businesses and into, that, into their lives. And I'll finally say um, people should get a Labradoodle because if they've got allergies, they're good dogs <laughs> they have, So. We, we, or a lurcher. We, or a lurcher, yep. You know, so, so so, many learnings and uh, <laughs> and hopefully we've just increased the amount of uh, Labradoodles that get adopted right now. So, And, and lurchers. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you, Simon. Really enjoyed it. Until soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to, but you've chosen to listen to ours. Our mission is to help a million people start a business of their own And anyone out there that started a business never feel alone doing it. I hope you have found John's insights useful today. I know I did. And if you found anything he had to say useful, imagine how useful his book is to you. Go to the link below and buy it. At the very least, give him a like on his social media and say hello. We thank you for listening to us today.